Hey there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge. I'm Dan, and joining me in the uh, not-quite-studio is... My name is John Hagen. I'm a local resident of Bay Ridge, and I'm also, by profession, an eighth-grade social studies teacher, which makes me at least somewhat qualified to talk about today's topic, but there will be other people we'll mention who are more qualified than either me or Dan <laughs> yes. to talk about this issue, and we'll send you to some great resources. Absolutely, and those will all be in the show notes. But in case you haven't read the title of today's episode, and knowing that we are your hyperlocal progressive podcast, you might know what side we're about to come down on this. Today we're talking about racist monuments in Bay Ridge, and not just physical monuments, anything that represents a racist or uh, semi-fascist history. And if it shocks you that there are those things in Bay Ridge, right off the bat, they're here. In particular, we're talking about two streets on the Fort Hamilton Army Base, one of which is named after Robert E. Lee, who was the general in charge of the Confederacy during the Civil War. In case you and, didn't the, know him. and the other is Stonewall Jackson, who was also a high-ranking general in the Confederacy. And they both have streets named after them on the Fort Hamilton Army Base in Bay yeah. Ridge. And... One of the streets is called General Lee Avenue, and we'll get to why that's particularly problematic. And the other is called Stonewall Jackson Drive. And those are streets that are still there today, still named so today in 2020 in Brooklyn, New York. We're not talking about South Carolina or Georgia. We're talking about Brooklyn, New York, having two streets named after Confederate generals. Mm -hmm. And if you're wondering about why that is, I feel like in a while, Dan is going to give you some good explanations. <laughs> yeah. For that. And just to start off this conversation so you have this context, um, both of them did serve on Fort Hamilton Army Base. They were, at various points in their career, employed by the U.S. Army, not the Confederate Army. And there have been occasional attempts to get the Army to not name these streets anymore after these people. It's worth noting that the street names are problematic not just because of the people they're named after, but because of why they were named after those people and when they were named after those people and what naming streets and monuments after those people was in service to in our history in the United States. Yeah. And so those are all things that we're going to talk about. But first I want to uh, give some acknowledgements about like, why am I sitting here with Dan? Why did Dan pick me to talk about this topic? Mm -hmm. I am not a professional historian, though I'm an eighth grade social studies teacher, which is roughly American history from the Civil War until now. So though I do teach this, I teach middle schoolers and not college <laughs> students. And I don't do any actual historical research that would be like peer reviewed in a journal. But I do have a knowledge base about this for several reasons. The first of which is, in my professional capacity as a social studies teacher, I spent three weeks in Beaufort, South Carolina, three summers ago as part of a National Endowment for the Humanities seminar, oh. learning about the history of Reconstruction in South Carolina. And of course, a lot of what I learned there is applicable to today. So most of my knowledge base comes from that and extensive reading on the subject, including various historians where mm. we'll, we'll give you their books later. And the second comes from me being included in some local activist work around this. And I want to give credit to those people before we get started, because I just don't want to be another white guy putting myself at the forefront of this <laughs> issue, when in fact I was invited by several people. So three years ago, right when I first got back from that workshop, a couple of weeks later, mm -hmm. Kayla Santisuoso, who is now Justin Brandon's deputy chief of staff, was then the campaign manager for Carter Elliottine when we were having a city council primary in Bay Ridge. Yep. And he was doing a rally in front of the Fort Hamilton Army base to advocate for changing the names. And the night before the rally, I was talking to Kayla and she said, hey, after she found out the workshop I went to, she's like, hey, do you want to talk at the rally tomorrow morning? And this was at midnight on one night and then the rally was nine o'clock the next morning. And I was like, okay. And then I got there and I gave my speech and the most famous moment of my life, I was on New York One for about 30 seconds. They showed a clip of me and I got to have my 
30 seconds of fame. And then it's been an important issue to me ever since. And more recently, in June of this year, there was another rally organized again by people who are not me, including Fight Back Bay Ridge and Bay Ridge for Social Justice and many of the other activist groups, many of whom are people of color who are leading the charge on this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just want to acknowledge that and say that both times I was invited to speak because I do have a little knowledge about it, but not because I am in charge of anything or at the forefront of anything. I just happen to have a little bit of knowledge I want to share. So I want to credit all of those people who allowed me to take part in those activities. And to be fair, you know, middle school social studies, I feel like there are a lot of people in this neighborhood who barely have that level of understanding, it seems, of Reconstruction, the Civil War, and why these streets are named the way they are. And I would say, Dan, some of our listeners are going to hear that and think we're talking about the defenders of these streets. But what I've found, in fact, is even people who are mm -hmm. repulsed by the idea of having streets named after Confederate generals don't really know why that is so deeply problematic. And so I think we should jump right into the history. And I want to frame the issue in a different way. So a lot of times when we talk about this, everyone puts the burden of proof on the people who want to change the names. Why should we change the names? What is the reason for changing names on these streets? These streets have been named this for so long. Why now is a common question that I get. And I want to flip that question. And I want to instead say what we should be asking is, why should we have monuments named after Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson? If we were designing street names or monuments today, would they be named after Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson? Mm -hmm. Why or why not? Is this the story we want to tell about our history and our country, to have monuments named after these men? I'm going to come down affirmatively in the no. <laughs> this is not the story we want to tell about our country. And we're going to be tackling this from multiple different angles. And another caveat, don't think that fact that we approach this from multiple angles means that all of these angles are necessary. There's one core angle, which is... Which is that Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were traitors to the United States. And they were not traitors in defense of a morally acceptable cause. They were traitors in defense of slavery. Robert E. Lee was offered command of the Union Army by Abraham Lincoln and decided instead to take the offer to run the Army of Northern Virginia of the Confederacy because he felt more allegiance to Virginia than he did to the United States of America. So he literally, literally isn't literally, <laughs> committed treason against the United States of America. And so did Stonewall Jackson because they both went to West Point. They both took oaths as soldiers mm -hmm. and they both violated those oaths and were directly and indirectly responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths of American soldiers and for rebelling against the United States in defense of slavery, an institution which existed before there was a the United States and maybe finally was starting to enter its death throes and they entered the battle on the side of slavery. Yes. So those two men are deeply morally problematic men, and they should not have monuments or streets named after them. And that, in many ways, could be the end of the conversation, but it is very much not. Yes. But if you really wanted to end there, if you're like, okay, I'm tired of listening to these two guys <laughs> talk about this, if we, if we bored you five minutes in, you could end there knowing that these two men committed treason in defense of slavery, and there is no conceivable reason that there should be a street named after them on a U.S. Army base. Yes. Because... The U.S. Army sacrificed hundreds of thousands of lives to fight the Confederacy, mm -hmm. to stop the treason and the rebellion against the United States. Including men who have also names on those streets in that base, and we'll get to that in another point. But let's start off with nomenclature. The names of the streets are a little odd to me. Yes, and here's the, one of the reasons why is one of the streets is called General Lee Avenue. But here's the irony of that name. Robert E. Lee never achieved the rank of general in the United States Army. 
He became a general in the Confederate Army. Yeah. So calling that street General Lee Avenue is like naming a street after Benedict Arnold and using his British rank in the title. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Though they served at Fort Hamilton, Dan can tell you a little bit more about how completely irrelevant and inconsequential their tenures yeah. at Fort Hamilton Army Base were. I've been researching this for a couple of years. Ever since um, I saw Cotterelia team stand up and say these bases should have these streets renamed. And a lot of misconceptions in even local historian groups are that Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson served on Fort Hamilton in some kind of important capacity, which is entirely incorrect. This was Robert E. Lee's, I think, third or fourth assignment. Fort Hamilton was only about a decade old at this point when Robert E. Lee served on the base. And he was simply an engineer. He was in charge of reworking the fortifications for a very recent and new base, which had leaky casements, battlements. And his job was to essentially go and repair these, even though they were new, kind of shitty fortifications and make sure that, you know, some gun emplacements were in the correct places, etc., etc. He was not commander of the base. In fact, Fort Hamilton didn't have a garrison until two years into Lee being on this base. It wasn't like it was today. This was a kind of backwater assignment that Lee took after being, I think, in St. Louis because it was so inconsequential that someone with such a junior rank in the U.S. Army at that point would have total freedom of control to do whatever they wanted. It was something that he kind of took just so he could run this engineering assignment the way that he wanted. He wasn't in charge of troops. He was basically spending most of his summers. And again, important, he mostly spent his summers here. He would vacation in the winters elsewhere when he could. And that was it. That was all of his importance in this neighborhood and with Fort Hamilton that never saw action, obviously. He didn't create the base he no didn't, he didn't he didn't he, didn't he didn't bring it to a position of national prominence no he was an irrelevant caretaker yeah he for did, a number he of did years. like you know repair the casemates like he did his job he was here for about five years not for a very long time again with numerous breaks and vacations in between because you can't really do army repair work during the winter and one of the reasons he really chose bay ridge or new york specifically he was offered a couple of other assignments he chose New York because it was within commuting distance of Arlington, and he really missed his family and wanted his family to be able to come up from Arlington to visit every once in a while. He also didn't really make that many good friends here. Um, there are lots of uh, reminiscences after the fact, after the war, where people in Bay Ridge remember Robert E. Lee with fondness. That's key. And we're going to talk about why that's key, that those reminiscences happened after the war <laughs> and not before. Yeah. So I want to say this, and I feel like this part of the conversation it could be summarized thusly. Robert E. Lee was not an important figure in no. Bay Ridge or Fort Hamilton history. And here's how you know that. On the Army base, there's the Harbor Defense Museum, yes. which is about the history of Fort Hamilton. And Dan, could you tell the listeners just how much of a mention does either Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson warrant in the Harbor Defense Museum? About a sentence. A sentence. Yeah, I've been okay. there. I love it. It's a lovely museum. It documents the history of the fortifications and battlements in New York Harbor. It's the Harbor Defense Museum. It's great. You should visit it if you can, and it provides a much more widely detailed and interesting history, of which Robert E. Lee, again, only warns about a sentence. But when you go to the Wikipedia page for Bay Ridge, Lee and Stonewall Jackson are named as, like, significant people who have originated from Bay Ridge, notable famous residents, which is absolute bullcrap. That's, that's not 
why are they there? They the were here the, for a couple of years. The people should note that in the first recording of this podcast, which we had to redo because of <laughs> poor sound due to rain, Dan used a different word than bullcrap. Oh my God. And I, I was think so salty. And I think he's editing himself for this podcast. Oh my goodness. So, so yes. if, we, if we say Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were inconsequential to the history of Bay Ridge and to the history of Fort Hamilton, then there is this question, which I really think we need to address. If those streets are not named after Jackson and Lee because of their importance to the base or to Bay Ridge, why are they named after Jackson yes. and Lee? And this is a case where our hyper-local political podcast <laughs> is going to have to go not so hyper-local. Yes, we're going to have to zoom is, out. This is not a Bay Ridge issue. It's Bay Ridge is a part of a bigger story in the United States. Yeah, and it helps you understand how we were basically just used. So the Civil War ends. Slavery ends. The ratification of the 13th Amendment. The occupation of the South post-war by the Union Army. Slavery ends, but white supremacy does not. The people who fought for the Confederacy immediately began the process of rewriting history. So I want to make this point clear. One of the arguments you get for not renaming the street names is people say, we can't erase our history um, <laughs> by taking away these monuments, by changing the names, we're erasing our history. So here's what I'm going to pause. I'm going to flip the script again. We are not erasing history by changing the names of those streets. We are undoing the erasure of history that the people who name the streets generally Avenue and Stonewall Jackson, the people who put up these monuments, have been doing since the end of the Civil War. So at the end of the Civil War, the Confederacy is lost and is in shambles, and there's a great deal of shame and a sense of profound change and loss in the air in the South. And so they need to tell the story in a different way to make themselves feel better. And to frame the loss of the hundreds of thousands of their family members mm -hmm. as being not in defense of the institution of slavery, but of something else. So they come up with an ideology which historians use the catch-all term, the lost cause. And in the reframing of the Civil War, known as the lost cause, the Civil War was not, in fact, fighting for slavery. It was fighting for states' rights. It was fighting for <laughs> local control. It was fighting for their genteel, civilized way of life. In this retelling of history... Slavery wasn't that bad. Slavery was a necessary step on the road to civilization by blacks. And in this sense, Southern slaveholders and Northern slaveholders, because slavery existed in the North, were in fact genteel caretakers of African-Americans. Yeah. There's even a children's book that was published within the last five or six years about Stonewall Jackson, which talks about how nice he was to his enslaved people. Oh, good God. So I forget the title. I'll try to find it and we'll put it up in the notes. But so oh, there's man. that. But I want to say that this lost cause myth was perpetuated by Lee and Jackson. And Lee said numerous times before and after the war that slavery was necessary for the instructions of the blacks as a race. And I just posit that because this lost cause ideology won. And that's a very interesting historical fact because usually when you lose a war, <laughs> the losers of a war don't, get to, write that don't get to write the history of the war. So here's what happens. The Civil War ends. The Northern Army is occupying the South and, in fact, is enforcing a degree of civil rights. And I'm going to say this, and this might shock you. There was more political equality in some parts of the South in 1870 than there was in 1950. Yeah. And that's because the Northern Army, including African-American soldiers who fought in the Civil War, were patrolling the South and enforcing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment on the South. Ulysses S. Grant encouraged and utilized a law called the KKK Act, which was passed in 1871, <laughs> which in fact sent the army to South Carolina and thoroughly stamped out the Ku Klux Klan using judicial and somewhat extrajudicial means, 
rounding people up, putting them on trial, putting them in jail. You want to be a white supremacist? Here's a group of 500 black soldiers with bayonets and rifles. Let's have some fun with that. In essence, the KKK for a couple of years was stamped out in South Carolina. Of course, there was outbreaks of white supremacist violence right after the war ends. The pushback starts immediately. But here's what happens. The country loses interest. The North loses interest. There's an economic depression in 1873, which really saps a lot of the Northern will to continue to enforce civil rights in the South. Because most Northerners, and this is something that everyone needs to hear, most Northerners couldn't give a crap about the civil rights of African-Americans in the South. They were tired of it. They're like, okay, we gave you your freedom. Now it's on you. Yeah. So the North starts to pull back. Congress stops giving Grant the financial means to use the military to enforce social policy in the South. And it all starts to fall apart. And state by state are retaken control of by the white supremacists. Mm -hmm. The Southerners at the time called this redemption. Each state was being redeemed. This culminates in 1876 when there's a presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes, a Republican, and Samuel Tilden, a Democrat, who there's actually or was a high school named after in Brooklyn. That's a whole other discussion. (laughs) So these two men run in one of the most corrupt elections in American history, Tilden and Hayes. And There's voter suppression and double counting and burning ballots on both sides, and it's unclear who won because the three states it comes down to are three of the states in which Reconstruction is still being deeply contested. And so there's a bipartisan, bipartisan between white people, commission named, and this commission comes up with this plan. Rutherford B. Hayes, Republican, alleged party of civil rights for African-Americans, you can become president, in exchange for which... You will stop using the military to enforce equal rights in the South, and you will let the South come back to the control of the South. Rutherford B. Hayes accepted and became president, but the South got what they really wanted, which was control of the South. And so though we had the end of slavery in the 13th Amendment, though we had the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal protection under under the law, and though we had the 15th Amendment, which allegedly guaranteed African-Americans the right to vote, those amendments were mostly fictional to the everyday lives of African-Americans in the South. And the South retakes control in 1876. The army, and I was wrong about this, and there's recent scholarship on this, does not leave the South. It just is removed from doing anything. Okay, interesting. So in essence, the Northern military is not a force in the South. Yes. Now we have the Southerners getting back control, but it doesn't happen right away because there are a number of African-American elected officials and a number of states in which there are large African-American populations. Mm-hmm. And so African-Americans in some pockets of the South do retain some measure of political power, but slowly it erodes and it erodes and a system of segregation comes into being. And that system of segregation is not sanctioned by law yet, but it's the beginning of what we would later call Jim Crow. And there is other means of enforcing slavery, including sharecropping, including convict leasing. And if you don't know what either of those two things are, they are essentially slavery by other names. Convict leasing being the use of African-American prisoners to do work which formerly enslaved people would do. And sharecropping, which was a system of organizing agriculture in which African-Americans leased land to grow crops on and shared the crops with the people who own the land. Shared. Heavy air quotes there. Except, yeah, there was air quotes that you can't see. It always somehow worked out against the African-Americans doing the sharecropping and somehow they were always in debt. The South is slowly slipping further and further away from those 10 years after the Civil War, which you could broadly call Reconstruction, where there was this sort of expansion of civil rights. And then by the 1890s, there's a Supreme Court case called Plessy versus Ferguson, which gives legal sanction to segregation. And Homer Plessy, an African-American man, 
decides he's going to challenge segregation by trying to ride in the whites-only car on a train in Louisiana. And the defenders of integration thought this was a good idea because they thought they would win. And so they sue. They get all the way to the Supreme Court. And Plessy versus Ferguson, the court says, segregation is allowed as long as the accommodations are, and we all know this phrase, separate but equal. And so now segregation has a legal sanction. Jim Crow There's, is no longer a social construct. And Jim Crow is a legal and social construct. Yeah. And so it is within this context that the Confederate street names start to happen. It is within this context that the monuments start to go up. And this is what we need to talk about. The South needed a way to present this to make it okay. And instill fear at the same time. So what they start to do is form these organizations, like one called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. There were others. And in the beginning, those organizations were just about burying the Civil War dead and having cemeteries with gravestones, which, you know, burying your family is not something I'm going to protest, Yeah, no matter who they were. But it sort of turns into something else, the United yeah. Daughters of the Confederacy. They become organizations who want to propagate and expand the lost cause ideology. And so they start funding money for statues all over the country. And Dan will talk about how this relates to Fort Hamilton in a minute. They start getting in charge of the textbooks in the schools in the South and yep. frankly, all over the country, because I don't know if people are aware of this. Many of the history textbooks used over the last 50 or 60 years in the North and the South were all written in Texas. Yep. And many of the textbook publishing companies right after the Civil War and into the mid-1950s and 60s had to be approved by certain members of high Southern society, which included many people who believed in this lost cause ideology and stuff was stricken from these books which would give the South any sort of a negative look. Yeah. And so the United Daughters of the Confederacy between, between education and monuments starts spreading this lost cause ideology. And you know what? They did a hell of a good job. Yeah. They basically rewrote the history of the Civil War and of Reconstruction. And they said that period of 10 years after the Civil War, that wasn't a miraculous, amazing expansion of civil rights. That was mob rule of people deeply unqualified and corrupt. You've probably heard this term carpetbagger, mm -hmm. which comes out of this ideology as well of Northerners coming down. There were corrupt Northerners who went down to the South. Yeah. Point. But they make Reconstruction into this corrupt nightmare of unqualified African-Americans when that's not what happened. They make Reconstruction into something that failed because black people weren't ready instead of something that was ended by violent acts of continued terror. So these streets and these monuments serve to reinforce and to justify the South's system of segregation and of inequality that came about after the Civil War. And Dan could sort of connect yeah. it locally to Bay Ridge. So the United Daughters of the Confederacy, they had multiple chapters. They were, by the point of the 1890s, where we're picking up from what John's talking about, they had individual committees in individual states. Uh, there was the New York Commission. There was New Jersey. The KKK had its stronghold on Long Island. So the New York chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy had shit to do, but of course the New York City chapters, not so much. So there were some expatriate Southern ladies who, you know, were hanging out in New York. And what do you do in New York? Like, they're a stone's throw from Grant's tomb. And I'm sure that got in their craw a little bit. Um, but there wasn't much to do. So at the same time, there is a pastor at St. John's, the Church of the Generals, the church where Robert E. Lee was a vestryman where Stonewall Jackson was baptized. And this guy is named Reverend William A. Swan. And this uh, church was originally mostly wood, and they went through a very expensive reconstruction around the 1890s. And the church, according to diocese records, which are also public domain, the church is in the red. It is not making up anything in donations. 
it is losing money for the diocese. And what happens is you see these continual attempts to get this church into the black. And it's at this point in the United Daughters of the Confederacy Minutes, which are also public domain, the New York chapter starts referencing that there is this rector down in Bay Ridge who is talking about this wonderful church where Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson worshipped, and uh, you should get money and donate uh, a stained glass window to this church. You know, let's connect the dots very clearly here. Like, this guy's pumping these old Confederate dames for money. So he's making Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson seem like they are more consequential than they are in order to make this spot in the minds of the United Daughters of the Confederacy a spot that is important to Southern history as they yes. conceive of And it. this is where the tree comes in. So at some point, this rector in the minutes for the United Daughters of the Confederacy starts talking about how there is this tree that was planted by Robert E. Lee. Again, I've gone through Lee's personal letters. He in no way mentions that he's ever planted such a tree. The first instance of it really comes from this pastor who's pumping people for money. Great source of primary documentation here. Let's take this guy's word for it. This tree was struck by lightning and it needed help and they needed a big metal band to put around it. And finally, finally, like after years of pumping these ladies for money, he shows up at the um, Waldorf Astoria in New York where they're having their national meeting. It moves around every year, but it was that year in New York and the Reverend comes and pleads his case in person. And they finally like are like, all right, we're going to donate money to save this tree. And they take a little motor drive down to Old Bay Ridge. And it's like, oh, it's just like the South. It's so pastoral. It's lovely. And let's not make it seem like this is all that pastor's blame. These ladies wanted to find a way of pushing lost cause ideology as hard as they it could in New York. It was, it was a mutually beneficial arrangement. Absolutely. And yeah. then they discovered the army base. And eventually they put a big boulder there honoring Lee's house that he stayed in while he was on base when actuality he was only there for one year and he built a house elsewhere that has long since been destroyed. They take a huge heart on for Bay Ridge because it's one of the few places that they have any kind of history that they can latch onto. And they dump tons and tons of money down here. And later on in those church diocese records, churches in the black. It's like nothing changed other than this. And this is for about like 30 years, the United Daughters of the Confederacy New York chapter really only talks about this. All their other donations and stuff are out of state. This is what they do. We were the result of a coordinated propaganda campaign by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in Bay Ridge. This is happening in the late 1800s, early 1900s, right? Yeah, this is when it starts. And so the Confederate monuments and street names did not go up right after the Civil War. And this is something that we're going to drop in the show notes also. The Southern Poverty Law Center has this great timeline. And on this timeline, they show you when these Confederate monuments and street names were put up. And what you'll see is very few were actually put up right after the Civil War. Most of them were put up in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in the 1920s, and in the 1950s. Gee, I wonder what was going on around then. So at all of those times, the South is either trying to firmly establish segregation and white supremacy or trying to reinforce its own narrative of the lost cause. Or African-Americans are starting to push back. It's worth noting that, for instance, Stone Mountain in Georgia went up in 1972. If you don't know what Stone Mountain is, it's a gigantic freaking Confederate apology. It's Mount memorial. Rushmore. It's Mount Rushmore for the Confederacy. Yeah, it's huge. And that went up in 1972. So On Native American land, but let's not you know, talk about that. That's a whole other shit. conversation. <laughs> so these monuments and street names were put up in the service of a political ideology that tried to paper over the white supremacy of the Confederacy and of the South and of the United States as a whole. So one of the common arguments I mentioned earlier is erasing history. 
And I feel like you can definitively say, no, we are not erasing history. We are erasing the erasure of history. That's the phrase I was looking for before because I like to be clever. <laughs> My students love stuff like that. They are 13 years old. but <laughs> I love that, it too. It, it is what it is. Another argument is that, but it's our heritage. We need to talk about that. Whose heritage are we talking about when we yes. say it's our heritage? And this is something that I learned from working with organizations like Facing History and Ourselves, which is a great organization for history teachers. When you think about who is a part of that our, Facing History would say who is a part of the we. Mm -hmm. When we say our heritage, we're talking about white Southerners and not yes. the hundreds of thousands of African Americans in any particular state, not the four million enslaved people in the United States in 1860. That was the number. So when you say it's our heritage, you are erasing millions of people from who counts as an American, who is worthy of being a part of the we. So when you're making a heritage argument, the question is, is what has Robert E. Lee's memory pushed out? What history have they overridden? We learn about them instead of X and Y. Now, Dan, was there someone who was consequential to the history of Fort yeah, Hamilton so base that actually fought on the Union <laughs> side? I'm glad you asked, John. Let's talk about <laughs> someone who has a street on Fort Hamilton Army Base, but not a long one, Abner Doubleday. You might remember him from like, oh, he invented baseball, didn't actually invent baseball. But one thing he did do, which I think is maybe a little bit more laudatory, he fought against Lee and Jackson at Gettysburg. He was an essential figure at Gettysburg. And he served not as some engineer 10 years into Fort Hamilton's construction. He served as commander of Fort Hamilton. He was consequential to the base's history and consequential to the Union side, our side of the Civil War. There is no statue honoring him or where he slept or what house he lived in. None of that is in Bay Ridge. Instead, we talk about Lee and we talk about Jackson because of this kind of perverse, ooh, we got the villain it's worth, mentality. It's also worth noting that having streets named after Lee and Jackson is in fact a dishonor to him and to everybody else from Bay Ridge, from Fort Hamilton, and from the United States who fought in the Civil War yeah. against the Confederacy. And I'm not even speaking about a bigger issue, which is imagine being an African-American soldier today yeah. stationed at an army base named after a Confederate yeah. military leader. Or going down a street named after a Confederate military leader in, in Bay Ridge. Another piece to that discussion is three years ago, Mitch Landrau, mayor of New Orleans and a sort of one of many of a democratic political dynasty in Louisiana, he removed some Confederate monuments from New Orleans. Yeah. And he gave a great speech, which is readily available on YouTube. I highly recommend you watch it. It is very powerful. And one of the things he said in that speech is there is a difference between the remembrance of history and the reverence of it. Yes. And so if you want to keep these monuments, we don't have to destroy them. We don't have to erase the fact that this street was once called Robert E. Lee Avenue. And the Confederate flag don't all have to be burned. But they need to be in museums yeah. where people can learn about history and learn about context. Because you don't learn history from street names or monuments. You revere historical figures and events. So in essence, when people say you're erasing history, I'm like, no, we're erasing the reverence for that person in history. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest, we should erase the reverence for Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, <laughs> and anybody else who served in the Confederate military or government during the Civil War. Absolutely. And let's talk about some other people that their memory shunted away. There are innumerable longshoremen and Black Wax, Women's Auxiliary Corps members, during World War II who served on Fort Hamilton Army Base, 
who were the subject of massive amounts of racism and discrimination and actually brought lawsuits against the Fort Hamilton Army base. And there are records in the NAACP archives, again, public domain. And one of the people who was handling those cases of discrimination of workers who were building roads on the base during World War II, Thurgood Marshall was the one handling those complaints. Against Fort Hamilton Army Base, we could be talking about these men learning more about what they went through. Instead, we talk about Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Thurgood Marshall Drive sounds a lot better to me than Stonewall Jackson and Drive. And that's, it's interesting that you bring up that that would have been a better name because this is another thing that I've been doing research on. When were these things named? We, we know when like the Boulder and the United Daughters of the Confederacy came in and slapped some plaques on stuff. And uh, St. John's has taken those down because they're private property and the church itself is like, <laughs> we want to distance ourselves from that shit. But why the federal government, why the army base, the United Daughters of the Confederacy can't? Well, they probably could pull those strings, but when were those street names named? And this is where some of my other research goes in. You don't need street names on army bases. For most of U.S. history, you don't need the, you, you name the barracks numbers, you name the batteries. Like, why do you need a street named? And it's because somewhere between 1920 and 1950 was when Fort Hamilton Army Base named those streets. I have blueprint records of the base design from 1920, and there are, no, there are no street names. And then in the 1950s, after the Verrazano Bridge comes through, and there's a lot of major road construction and reworking of the base and putting private apartments and on-base housing, where all of a sudden you might need a street name because mailing addresses, we get names like that. And, which is ridiculous, because when people have been demanding the renaming of these streets, the official army response was that these streets were named in the spirit of reconciliation. And if it was done between 1920 and 1950, that's a good solid hundred years. So, okay. Let me after talk, the war's over. Let me talk about the spirit of reconciliation. In Reconstruction Scholarship and in sort of how I teach my students, there's a difference between reconciliation or healing, you could call it, let's say, and justice. Who was the reconciliation between? And the reconciliation that happened in that bipartisan, air quotes, commission in 1876 is between white Southerners and white Northerners. There was no reconciliation for African-Americans. And here's a story. The 50th anniversary of Gettysburg. They have a big, well-to-do get-together of all the surviving Civil War veterans, the thousands of them that are still alive. They have it on the lawn, if you believe by the White House, the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. They all sleep in tents. They're wearing their old uniforms. Mm -hmm. Northern and Southern soldiers together, right? The spirit of reconciliation. President Woodrow Wilson goes down and says a few words, also a white supremacist, another conversation. And this is this great moment in American history, right? They're shaking hands. They're reenacting battles. They're like people in their gray jackets, people in their blue jackets. But in 1913, 50 years after Gettysburg, 20 years after Plessy versus Ferguson guarantees segregation, there is not a single African-American soldier invited to this event, mm -hmm. though it was the 50th anniversary of the battles of Gettysburg, because they were not included in the reconciliation that occurred between the North and the South. Yeah. The reconciliation was between white supremacists in the South and white supremacists in the North who just wanted to put this mess behind us and continue on their merry white supremacist way. What I want to say about this idea of reconciliation is, to be blunt, it is racist and it's crap. Because we don't need reconciliation. Reconciliation in American history always happens at the expense of marginalized people. People say, but these monuments are not important issues. That's what we hear from our side on the progressive side. Like, why are you talking about monuments? There's this, this, and this. And what I would say is, if this wasn't important, then the other side wouldn't be fighting back. Why are people against 
taking down Confederate monuments or renaming streets. Really deeply ask yourself that question. Southerners who maybe have family who formed the Confederacy, that's one thing and that's a different conversation, though I still think it's deeply problematic. Why are Northerners, anybody that doesn't have a direct link to the Confederacy, why do people in New York City oppose the renaming of streets that are named after traitorous enslavers? Yeah. There is no good answer to that question. I mean, I grew up with access to Fort Hamilton as, you know, a privileged white kid, basically. Um, one of my friends had access to the pool there and some of the social clubs. And I've heard lots of stories that that base continues to have a major problem with race to this very day. And that should be confronted. But also, let's rewind. When we're talking about reconciliation and justice, let's talk about a figure in U.S. history way, way earlier than the Civil War who doesn't have that kind of racial animosity placed on them, but also a traitor. And we mentioned him very early on in the show. How did we treat Benedict Arnold? How did we treat him in terms of monuments and naming? Because he actually did a service to our country before he Absolutely. The Battle of Saratoga was an incredibly important battle that was pivotal to the war. And we still learn about, you know, Benedict Arnold in school. If I said his name and you went, oh, yeah, I know Benedict Arnold. Like, of course, he's proof that you don't need a statue to learn about history because Benedict Arnold has no statues. We wiped him from all of our veneration. There's a monument on the Saratoga battlefields, like a big tower, and there are little alcoves on all four corners where all of the officers who served at Saratoga are immortalized, and there's one arch that has no one in it. They're snubbing him. They are laughing at it. There is a monument on that battlefield called the Boot Monument because Benedict Arnold got his legs shot off at the Battle of Saratoga, and there is a monument with no name on it, and it's just a statue of a severed leg with a boot on it. And it was a monument to the only part of Benedict Arnold that didn't turn traitor because it got shot off before he actually turned on West Point. He tried to give West Point over to the British. And in West Point, there is the Old Cadets Chapel that has the monuments for every single one of the people who commanded during the Revolutionary War. And George Washington has his plaque and everyone has their plaque. And there is a plaque with just everything scratched off. It remains up. But the name is scratched off, the rank is there, and then the rest is scratched off, ripped off. That's Benedict's. We literally destroyed, as a country, remembrances of him to almost make them monuments to what he did. They're there, so you go, that guy's an asshole. They're, so, they're, they're anti-venerating him. So, you know, poor guy, if he had been a white supremacist or fought in defense of slavery... Perhaps he would have kept his monument, even though he was a traitor. Yeah, let's talk about King George. People are like, ah, oh, pulling down monuments is looting and it's violence. Like, hell no. In New York City, ripping down a monument and making bullets out of it is in our goddamn history. We did that with King George's monument in the Battery. We pulled it down in the Revolution and melted it down for bullets. So, so it's worth just sort of wrapping up. These monuments and street names were put up in service of rewriting and erasing history, in service of white supremacist lost cause ideology, to make it a benign institution interested in states' rights and the Southern way of life. These monuments, however, were actually put up as acts of political terror to scare and silence those who were fighting against the system of Jim Crow segregation and lynching. Bay Ridge and Brooklyn absolutely included in that. 
Our last lynching was in the 1980s. No one's going to say they don't believe in equal rights. No one's going to say they don't believe in social equality broadly defined. So broadly, in fact, that it's meaningless. But you can't say that and then support having monuments named after traitors. If we were naming those streets today, we're deciding on what monument should occupy public space. The Confederacy would not, under any conceivable way, make the cut. And so what we need to think about is not why should we take them down, but why, in God's name, are they still up? And why, in God's name, are people so attached to keeping them up? Because each day that they remain up is a decision. It isn't apathy. It is a decision because it is just a name. You can change it. It is not hard. It's writing out a couple of lines on a bill somewhere, and it's done. When I saw that plaque going off of that tree at St. John's Churchyard, it took a circular saw. It doesn't take a lot. And every moment we don't do that, it's a decision and a reflection and a monument, not to Robert E. Lee, but a monument to us today as being okay with white supremacy in our neighborhood. That's what we're memorializing every day in Bay Ridge, is that we're okay with this. So if you're not convinced by us, or if you just want more resources, what we're going to put in the show notes are a couple of things. Speaking of West Point, the person in charge of the department history at West Point, Colonel Ty Sigil, he has this great six-minute YouTube video in which he completely decimates the idea of the South being about states' rights. So that's one thing that you'll see in the show notes. Another thing is, The American Historical Association put out a statement about what we should do with monuments, what we should do with memorials. In that statement, they said, we need to consider the chronology and other evidence that provide context for why an individual or event has been commemorated. And so when people say you're erasing history, what they really mean is you're erasing their preferred interpretation of history. We'll put the timeline from the Southern Poverty Law Center. If you really look at when the monuments went up, you will understand why they went up if you know what was also happening at the same time. And I'll be putting in as many public domain resources to the United Daughters of the Confederacy and actual letters that Lee received and wrote while he was in Bay Ridge that show his depression and lack of interest in this neighborhood, that show his racism even at the time, lamenting the fact that there were abolitionist causes in Brooklyn where he was living and in his disgust with that. So you can kind of get it from his own mouth, what kind of a man he was and what he thought about this neighborhood. Not from reminiscences from people after the fact who wanted to claim that they had brushed up to fame, but from the man himself. And finally, we'll put up the video of Mitch Landrow's speech, which is very powerful, and some reading recommendations from historians, black and white, including Henry Louis Gates, who wrote a really nice summary of Reconstruction recently, among many other scholars who wrote about Reconstruction. And I deeply recommend if you want to understand this deeper. And these are all things for you to consider. I appreciate you listening to us. And I just want to once again acknowledge that these are issues of deep racial importance. And listening to two 30-something white guys from Brooklyn should not be the only knowledge you have about this, though we tried to be fairly comprehensive. So everyone, the show notes are on RadioFreeBayRidge.org. Go and check it out. Follow us on Twitter if you have questions for me or John about this episode. There is a lot of stuff that did not make the cut for this episode. Obviously, it is a very deep subject because there's a lot of history that is being hidden and overshadowed by these racist monuments in this neighborhood. So check us out on Twitter at Radio Free BR. Check us out on Facebook at Radio Free Bay Ridge. We're on Instagram. If you feel like donating, we have a little donate page for Patreon. 
Whatever you want to do, however you want to say thanks, however you want to get involved and ask questions, please do. Because obviously there's a lot of history to explore here. And John, yeah. thank you so yeah. much for coming out and talking about it. And another it. shout out to all the women and people of color and others who are leading the charge against these Confederate thank monuments you. and any of the other issues. And so again, I want to say thank you for that. And Dan, we'll see you next time. I probably won't. <laughs> we might have you back. This was actually really fun. So again, everyone, until next time, stay free, Bay Ridge. Bye.